You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I heard someone say, I hope so. Can we be, can we be contentious or uh, contentious? Was it peacefully contentious? I hope so. I hope so too. Uh, whoever said that, yes. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our series this morning in contentious Christianity, which is actually a, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Jude. Uh, so this is sort of a bonus sermon. Uh, kind of the director's cut, if you will, of the sermon series. A little extra material. We're not even going to open Jude today. We'll reference it a couple times. But um, the content in Matthew's gospel, particularly in the chapter that we're going to be in, chapter 5, I think is very fitting for this series. And so we're going to go for it. We're going to go with it. Uh, Jude's little letter, for as small as it is, and it is, it's one chapter, it's not a very big book, for as little as it is, it says a lot of things. I mean, there are a lot of things in that letter. But I think if you were to sum it up just in sort of a sentence or an idea, Jude is, is, is telling Christians that we must be willing to contend for faith. Jude chapter 3 serves as sort of the thesis of this letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I, I wanted to write to you about the things that we have in common as Christians, the, just the basics of the faith. But I found it necessary, he says, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude, more than anything else, wants us to consider the necessity of contending for the truth of our faith. Be contentious for truth. Don't be mean or nasty. Don't get out of line with people. But contend for truth when the truth comes under fire. And and so it's a fitting sermon series, I believe, for our time, because right now the truth is increasingly coming under fire. And so we as believers need to be reminded that we have to speak up. We have to contend. We have to fight for that which we believe is true and good from the Scriptures. And, And if I could just be honest with you as your pastor, one of my hopes for this sermon series is that it would equip you to begin engaging in this kind of contentiousness. Uh, I hear a lot of people say, and, and I, I understand the sentiment, it's good sentiment, uh, I agree with the sentiment, although I think it is, is misled. People will say things like, if there were just more pastors like you guys that were willing to speak the truth, the world would be a much better place. And I disagree. I disagree. Certainly a little bit better. I mean, no doubt about that, but, but what would make the world much better is if more Christians were willing to speak the truth. There are a lot more Christians in the world than there are pastors, and we are all, as believers, charged to speak and contend for truth. I was reminded this week of a story that I read about a Midwestern fair uh, that took place some years ago, and a lot of events there, a lot of fun family engagements there, but one of the things they had was a good old-fashioned horse pull. Who knows what a horse pull is? Yeah, okay, of course, Tana first service. Oh, and we got one back here. Okay, so a horse pull, for those of you who don't know, is where you bring your horse. Of course, everyone has one of those. You bring your horse to the fair, and you attach your horse to a horse-drawn carriage, and you load the carriage up with as much weight as you can, and whichever horse can pull the most weight wins the blue ribbon. 
That particular year, the first place blue ribbon horse pulled 4,500 pounds. That's a lot of weight. That may be an unrelatable number to you, 4,500 pounds. It's not something that, that you're like engaging with on a regular basis. So to give you an idea of what 4,500 pounds is, the 2017 Honda Odyssey minivan is roughly 4,460 pounds. So this is just a little bit more than a Honda Odyssey in a horse carriage, okay? Uh, incredible. Second place horse, somewhere around 4,400 pounds. At the end of the event, they thought it would be fun, kind of an experiment, to put first and second place horses together on the horse and see how much they could pull together. And you would expect, with simple math, somewhere around 8,900, maybe 9,000 pounds, give or take, they pulled 12,000 pounds. Now, this is because, of course, of the magic of something called synergy, right? Where, where the sum parts are greater than the parts by themselves. That, in other words, we are able to do more per capita together than we are individually. It's true for horses. It is also true for people as well. When Christians are linked up together, we are able to do more per capita than we are on our own. So yes, it's great when a pastor resolves to stand up and speak for the truth. It's, it's a great thing. How much greater when Christians resolve to do that? How much more impactful when Christians decide to take this upon themselves? And so that's the hope for this. Not to just give you information, not to just talk about the things that I believe matters with regard to Scripture, but to inspire and equip you to join in the conversation. Now, we're talking about contending for the faith, and I want to begin this morning with a principle that will sort of set the direction for the rest of our time here together. The principle says this, you will only be contentious over the things that matter to you. You will only be contentious over the things that matter to you. In other words, you're not going to fight for things that you believe hold no real value in the world. If something is valuable to you and it comes under fire, the natural response is for you to protect and fight for that thing. If you're not willing to fight for that thing, what it reveals is that you don't really care about that thing. Thus, you will only be contentious over the things that matter to you. This principle is so important for us. Really for two reasons. This sort of sets the context for the whole reason why we're doing the sermon series. Number one, it explains why some professing Christians are not contentious for the faith. And I use that terminology, professing Christians, very intentionally. Uh, some professing Christians are not interested in fighting for the truth of God because the reality is the truth of God doesn't really matter that much to them. And I know that's hard to hear, but, but it's true. Some professing Christians are not contentious over the faith because the faith doesn't matter. They would never admit that, but their actions absolutely demonstrate that. They don't really read the Scripture with any sort of regularity. They don't really know the Scripture. And so when scriptural truths come under fire, they're not even always aware it's happening. Either way, the lack of contention for truth reveals that that truth is not really the biggest priority on their list of priorities. That's the first thing that the principle reveals to us. But secondly, and I would say as importantly, it explains why the world is so contentious against the truth of God. It explains why the world is so contentious. Last week, I, I, re I read a passage that applies very deeply to this whole topic, where John the Apostle says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be, don't be surprised by that. 
that the world rejects and hates you. The question is, why? Why does the world hate us? And here's why. It's because God's truth, as revealed in Scripture, confronts and condemns sin, and the world does not like that. The things that matter to the world come under fire from the Word of God, and the world gets contentious about it. So understand where we're at. Understand where we're living at right now. You have the world who is dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2.1 says, which we were all dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1 says. We have been saved by grace. The world is still there. The world is dead in trespasses and sins. They are waging war because it's their nature against the truth of God's word. And what that does is it should cause Christians to contend for that truth that is coming under fire. And when we do that, the truth of God's word then confronts and condemns them and in turn, the world becomes hostile and contentious with us. This is why there is conflict in the world today. This is ultimately what the book of Revelation is building towards. So if you read Revelation in this future time, it is painting a picture of a two-kingdom system, that the world is going to be uh, inhabited by two primary kingdoms, the kingdom of the beast and the kingdom of the lamb. And the kingdom of the beast is going to possess and rule over the earth, and they will be attacking the kingdom of the lamb. And it will look like the kingdom of the beast is going to overcome the kingdom of the lamb until the lamb returns. And then the, the kingdom of the beast is destroyed. This is where, this is where we're going. This is the, the picture that Revelation is painting for us for the future. It's why there is conflict now as well. I'm not saying we're there yet, but what I'm saying is the conflict is there because, again, we contend for what matters to us. Christians are contending over what matters to them, namely the truth of God's word. The world is contending for what matters to them, the sin that Scripture condemns, and so both parties are in conflict with one another. So what I want to do this morning is, is not talk about why we contend, because that, that's pretty clear. I want to talk about what makes us different from the world and how we contend. Both of us are in contention, but there is something about Christians that should be very, very different in the way that we contend, or con contend with the world. When the world gets in contention, they get nasty, they name call, they do not play by the rules, and when they are at their most contentious, they crucify. But we don't do that. We don't contend like they do. So the question is how? What makes us different? That's why I titled the message today, What Makes Us Different? And we learn some of what makes us different in Matthew chapter 5. So let me give you a little context for this passage before we dive into it. Matthew 5 through 7 is uh, what is easily the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Really, it's, it's a really great thing for pastors and preachers because we never have to try to be the one that preaches the greatest sermon. Like it's already been done. Greatest sermon ever recorded right here. Uh, everything is second best after that. And, and in this sermon, Jesus covers a lot of territory. He covers a lot of stuff. He talks about all kinds of things. But again, if you were to sum this sermon up, what you find is that Jesus is showing how he raises the standards of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament has a standard by which the people of God should live. And what Jesus does is he comes along and says, this is not a high enough standard. I'm going to raise the standard even greater than what the Old Testament law dictated. For example, let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So understand, the Old Testament has a goal in mind, a standard by which we are to live our lives. And that standard, at least here, is don't murder your brother. And as long as you're not murdering your brother, nailing it. Yes. Great. And Jesus says, that's not a high enough standard. Anyone can not murder their brother. That's not good enough. I say to you, if you're going to be my follower, you don't even let anger come between you and your brother. Whatever it is, whatever sin, whatever thing is going on between you and your brother, you go and you make peace with that brother. You go and deal with that anger or you will also be judged. John is going to say later in 1 John that anyone who is angry with their brother has already committed murder. So this is a serious thing. Jesus is raising the standard by which we live our lives. He's redefining the standard of the law. And he can do this, by the way. Why? Because he's God. This is another one of those passages that is very implicitly demonstrating Jesus' deity. He's not just some teacher of the law. He's not just some rabbi. He is redefining Scripture. He's saying, this isn't good enough Here's where my standard is. Now, it's in this context that we learn what makes us different in the way that we contend for truth. Are we ready? Are you with me? About three of you. Good. All right. Let's go. Here's what makes us different. Number one, we contend for truth even when it's inconvenient. We contend for the truth even when it's inconvenient. Read with me starting in verse 33, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So he begins with a reference to the Old Testament. We're going to do a lot of this this morning, looking back at the Old Testament and seeing how Jesus is interacting. And there's there's likely two passages that Jesus has in mind as he is, is doing this first part. The first one is Leviticus 19, verse 12. It says, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So what Jesus is talking about here. And what Leviticus is talking about here is the practice of of engaging in some kind of agreement with someone and, and committing to some standard, committing to some action, and then to verify or solidify that action, saying to that person, I swear to God I will do that. That sort of establishes how serious I am about getting that done. This is one of those concepts that we get very wrong, I think, in the modern evangelical church. We misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The problem here is not swearing to God. That may surprise some of you. That's not the issue that Jesus is attacking. Jesus is attacking the issue of swearing to God and then not performing what you said you were going to perform. That's the problem. That's what it means to swear falsely. There's another passage that he likely has in mind that really speaks very clearly to this issue. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The problem is not with taking oaths or swearing. The problem is not following through if you've taken an oath. That is what profanes the name of God. In essence, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, you shall not swear by God's name to do something and then not do that thing. But then look what he says after, verses 34 through 37. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, what what is Jesus talking about here? What does this mean? He is attacking a very historical and common practice in the ancient Jewish people. People in this day developed the habit of taking oaths, and rather than taking oaths in the name of God, they would take them over something else. So the illustrations he gives here are uh, taking an oath over heaven or over earth or over Jerusalem, and then what would happen is if they didn't follow through on that oath, there was no harm because they didn't take the oath in the name of God, and that's what Scripture condemns. So this is how it would work. It was a loophole, really, to be dishonest. It was a loophole that would get you out of trouble if you didn't perform what you said you were going to perform. Now think about for a moment, why do we take oaths? Why do people do this? Why do people say things like, I swear to God and fill in the blank? It's because it's a way to emphasize how serious you are about following through with what you said you were going to do, to try and convince you and endear trust from you. So for example, if you were to loan me $500 and I say to you, thank you so much, I'm going to pay you back. You, you better believe I'm going to pay you back. And you're like, well, how do I know that? If I say, I swear to God, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back every dime. What I've just done is I've just entered myself into a binding obligation that I now have to fulfill, otherwise I fall into judgment from God because I've sworn falsely. So here's what they would do, is they would say, hey, I, I appreciate the $500. I swear by heaven, I'm going to pay you back. I swear by the earth, I'm going to give you every dime back. I swear by Jerusalem, you can count on me, I'm going to pay you back. And that sounds convincing, but the Jews reason that it's not actually binding, there's no actual judgment because you're not swearing on the name of God, and that's what the scriptures are condemning. It's a cheap way of endearing trust to myself without any form of risk. So Jesus comes back and he says, you're wrong. So you want to swear by heaven? Well, you've you've just sworn by the throne of God. You want to swear by the earth? Well, you've just sworn by the footstool of God. You want to swear by Jerusalem? Well, you've just sworn by the city of the great king. It doesn't matter what you're swearing by. It doesn't change anything. Your oath is still binding because anything that you swear by, it all belongs to him because he is the author and creator and possessor of all things. So it doesn't matter. So what does Jesus do instead? He just says, say yes or no. Either you're going to do what you say you're going to do or you're not. Stop trying to find loopholes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus is not condemning oaths before God. He's condemning a flippant oath that means to get out of any kind of risk if you fail to perform what you said you were going to perform. This is how I know. Because Paul swears by God in in parts of Scripture. And it's not a problem. Galatians chapter 1, Paul lays out his whole argument, the whole reason for why he can claim to be an apostle of God. And he says in Galatians 1.20, I assure you before God, I swear to God that what I am saying is no lie. It's not a problem for Paul to do that because he's telling the truth. Jesus isn't condemning that. Jesus is condemning dishonesty, especially when it becomes inconvenient for you. If I say I'm going to do something and I swear by it, and it comes time to do it, and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to do that because it's going to cost me or it's going to affect me in some negative way. And you know what? I didn't, technically, I didn't take an oath by God's name, so I don't have to do it. That's what Jesus is condemning. Dishonesty in the face of inconvenience. Now, here's why this matters for our discussion this morning in the context of contending for the truth. Because if we are going to be contentious for the truth of God, we'd better be willing to embody truth in every area of our life. 
You cannot make a big deal about the truth of God and then lie and manipulate in your day-to-day lives for your own personal gain. Part of the reason I suspect people get so upset with Christians contending for the truth is that we've done a really bad job of living it out in our day-to-day lives. Like if you've, if you've lived dishonestly with people in your life, with family members, with, with work associates, with people who are close to you, if you've lied to cover your butt, if you've lied and, and manipulated to benefit you in some shady way, and then all of a sudden you start getting very vocal about the, the truth of God's word, people are going to take you very seriously. How can the truth matter to you when you have violated it over and over and over again for your own personal benefit? It's something that we have to consider. Jesus calls us to be people of truth. We don't even need oaths. Oaths are useless to us. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. When we are contentious, we're contentious for truth even when it's inconvenient, even when it costs me something. I'm willing to lead with truth and I'm willing to reflect it in every area of my life in order to bolster my argument. Are you following me? We haven't fun yet. What makes us different is we contend for the truth even when it's inconvenient. Secondly, and this is an important one, we contend for truth, not with people. We contend for truth, not with people. Keep reading, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So again, Old Testament, this time Jesus is uh, almost certainly pulling from Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. It says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Jesus is kind of shorthanding this verse. You can understand, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth just seems a lot easier to say than all of that. But it comes right out of that passage. This is a a form of an ancient law code that was prevalent not only in Israel but in other surrounding nations even prior to the time of Jesus that we refer to as lex talionis, lex talionis. Uh, It is a Latin phrase that means the law of retaliation. It's a law, check this out, it's a law that allows you to retaliate when someone harms you. And all God's people said, don't say amen, don't say amen. But you know you want to. You know you want to. Yeah, it's a law that says if someone harms you, then you by law have the right to bring the same exact measure of harm against them. And Jesus is acknowledging that law, but then keep reading. Look what he says, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, who is the one who is evil in this context? It's just the person who's harming you. It's the person who, is, who has brought some measure of harm against you. In other parts, like in 1 John, for example, uh, the evil one is, is a reference to Satan, right, the enemy. Here, it's just the person who is at odds with you. The word resist, he says, do not resist that one. It's the Greek word onthistomy, and it means to oppose or to fight. So to summarize, again, if, if we're just modernize this a little bit, what Jesus is saying is, I say to you, don't fight with the one who has harmed you. Don't fight with the one who is at odds with you. Why? Because we contend for truth, not with people. And Jesus gives three examples of what this looks like. Keep reading. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's a lot squeezed in here. Jesus covers a lot of ground in these few verses, but I want to quickly unpack them because they, they significantly shade the way we understand what Jesus is saying here. The first example he gives, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I don't know if you're a visual person or not, if you can kind of put this together in your mind, but if you are someone who has been slapped on your right cheek and you understand that the world is like, what, like 91% right-handed, then in order to be slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person, it would require the back of that person's hand, which incidentally, and it's true for us today, but very true in the ancient world, was easily the most insulting thing that you could do to someone in a public sense. Extremely disrespectful. One of the biggest insults that you could wager upon someone is to backhanded slap them. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, don't trade insult for insult. Turn your other cheek to that person. Don't be brought down to that level, right? Turn your other cheek. The second scenario, and I'm going to modernize the phrasing here because I think it will make more sense for you. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat as well. Let them have your coat as well. Now, there's a legal context for this. It comes out of Exodus chapter 22, where the law required you in a legal context to give your shirt to someone as a pledge for some kind of binding law agreement. And what Jesus is saying here is if they compel you to give your shirt to them, give them your coat additionally. Coat was far more important in the ancient world. It protected you from the cold. It protected you from the elements. If you were to give a person both your shirt and your coat, this was a very radical action that went way above what the law demanded of you. This is, again, Jesus raising the standard, saying that this down here, not good enough. My followers, we're going to take it up a notch. The third scenario, Jesus says, is if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. There's a really cool historical context to this as well. Uh, in Rome... The Roman law dictated that a traveling Roman soldier could compel any person in Rome to stop what they were doing and carry their bag, their weapons, whatever it was that they had on them for one mile. No further than one mile. But because Roman soldiers were traveling a lot, they would come through the city, they often didn't have horses unless you were a higher ranking official. And so if you were coming through the city, you're holding you know, a shield and a sword or a, a spear or something, or maybe you have a satchel with some other stuff in it. It's a lot of heavy stuff. You're walking a lot of miles. You had the ability, it was a privilege for the soldier to keep them you know, not from getting completely worn out, to stop someone and say, hey, I want you to carry my stuff for a mile. And you had to, by law, do it. So again, I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who experiences this. It's Sunday, you're at brunch, because we're in Rome, there's no Christians yet, and you are maybe on a patio, right, eating your food, enjoying your day, it's beautiful outside, and you hear footsteps walking down the little cobblestone street, and you look over to wave and acknowledge, because we're nice in the south, right, and you notice a soldier, and he makes eye contact with you, and he says, you, you are going to take all of this and carry it for a mile. And you're like, oh, I have to by law, but my brunch is going to get cold and I'm having a great time and I don't want to have, didn't wear the right shoes for this today, but it's fine, let's get it over with, right? And so you pick the stuff up and this is what you would do. One, two, three, four, five. I'm not giving him an extra step, right? The moment I hit a mile, I'm dropping this stuff and I'm going back to brunch, because this is annoying, it is inconvenient, it is taking me out of what I want to do, and it is making me angry. I'm just frustrated thinking about it. 
And what Jesus says is, don't do that. Go two miles. Go an extra mile. You ever heard that term? Go the extra mile? That's where that comes from. It's exactly where this comes from. Jesus is, again, acknowledging in all three of these the desire of retaliation. It is built within us. When someone harms me, I want to punish them. And Jesus is saying, there is a law. You have heard it said. It is your right to bring retaliation against that person. But I say to you, when you retaliate against that person, you are fighting the wrong fight. You're missing it. We're not supposed to be fighting with people. Why? Because we fight for truth, not with people. Our fight is not with people. It's with this world system that brings and wages sin upon everything. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6.12? It's like one of our favorite verses in the evangelical church. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, people, but who? Against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying we don't fight with people. It isn't about them. We contend for truth, not with people. And listen, it's such a vital concept for us to get this. We have to get this. We have to get this. Otherwise, we miss the point of what Judah's saying. It's so easy. Listen, I know how easy it is when you are contending for the truth, to allow it to get personal. I know. It is so easy when you are contending for the truth to give in to a spirit of offense and to get your feelings hurt. And listen to me, when you allow that to happen, you lose. You lose every single time. You are doing no one any favors. Let me give you a truth. The moment you begin to fight with people is the moment you stop fighting for truth. You've got to hear that. The moment you begin to fight with people is the moment you stop fighting for truth. Why? Because you've just switched targets. You're distracted now. You're no longer fighting the same fight. You get into this tit-for-tat, back-and-forth, retaliation-centered argument. You lose every single time. And that is exactly, precisely what the enemy of God wants from you. It's for you to get wrapped up in some stupid feud and totally forget what actually matters. And folks, let's get honest. This happens 99% of the time on social media. And it has to stop. This is one of the biggest lessons I learned in 2020 is this right here, is that I'm not going to make a big deal about anything other than Jesus, because everything else is a distraction. You know, the the amazing thing about Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, everything that Jesus is saying here, all of it is for us, not the ones we contend with. If, If I obey Jesus in this, in this passage, no one is benefited by my obedience more than me. And here's why, especially for our context at City on a Hill, where we very much believe in in becoming more like Christ, both in our head, hands, and especially our heart. Because these actions that Jesus is calling us to are heart-changing actions. They're heart-changing. If someone slaps me, you know what my heart's desire is? Right. Slap back time. So, so understand this, turning my cheek in that 
situation is for me, not them. In order to turn my cheek, I have to surrender my desire to retaliate against them. I have to be okay, as much as I hate it, with them not getting what I think they deserve. And that is so difficult. That is so difficult. Turning the other cheek changes me. It changes me. It shapes my heart. And it keeps me focused on the real fight. If I have to carry a bag for a mile, deciding to help that person for two miles is really for me, not him. It helps him. He gets an extra mile. That's great. But the reality is, if I only go a mile, all he has to do is find the next person and go, hey, you, come carry my bag for another mile. It's not really any benefit for him. The benefit is for me. If I decide to go two miles with him, the benefit is for me. Because as someone who is put out by this, I have to put down my feelings of retaliation and stop seeing that person as an enemy and start seeing him as someone who is in need. If I see him as an enemy... I lose sight of the real enemy. Jesus says, don't fight with them. Stop fighting with them. We contend for truth, not with people. Now, I want to say as a side note that Jesus is not calling us to roll over and just get walked all over. He's not calling you to subject yourself to abuse. He's not saying that you should be a pacifist. I've heard that argument from people before. Christians should be pacifists. Christians are by definition not pacifists. We are at war. It's just, not a, it's just not an earthly war. It's a spiritual war. But it would be really ridiculous to say that we're pacifists and then hear Paul say, take up the full armor of God. For what? A parade? <laughs> we're at war. We contend. But we don't contend against people. We contend for truth. Every other quarrel is just a distraction. What makes us different? What makes us different? We contend for truth even when it's inconvenient. We contend for truth, not with people. And last, we contend compassionately. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, as you might expect, we're going back to the Old Testament, more references here. Uh, Old Testament command here, though, is a little, it's a little harder to, to uncover. There's a lot of commandments in the Old Testament that explicitly say, love your neighbor. It's the hate your enemy part that's not as explicit. Uh, Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18 says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. The command to love our neighbor is explicitly clear. There's no question about that. It's the hating the enemy part that's not as explicit. And so some scholars have tried to argue that perhaps the hate your enemy is a part of the law that was added by the Pharisees but wasn't actually a part of the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, you never find a verse that says, you shall hate your enemy. You see, you shall love your neighbor. You never see, you shall hate your enemy. But I, I, I'm just going to say, I think that's bad scholarship. There's no explicit passages. That is true. But there are tons of passages that highlight the very real command to hate your enemy. Psalm 129, verses 21 and 22. The psalmist says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I mean, that sounds pretty much like hate your enemy to me. 
But if that's not good enough, how about this one? Deuteronomy chapter 25, God tells the Israelites because uh, of some treacherous behavior of, a, of another nation, the Amalekites. He says, here's what you're going to do, Israel. Anytime you come across an Amalekite, kill them. I am going to blot the Amalekites out of memory from the earth. They are your enemies because they are my enemies. That's, I mean, that sounds like hate your enemy, folks. Can we agree? So, so Jesus is not wrong here. The Old Testament is clear. It does say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But then look at what Jesus does to counter this, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Oh boy. He's raising the standards again, isn't he? He's saying, if you only love those who love you, how are you any different than the world? You're not. They hate you for what you stand for. They contend with you over the truth of God. And if you hate them back and fight them back... How are you any different than they are? You're no different. What makes us different is that we are willing to contend for the truth, but we do so in a compassionate manner. We're able to separate the fight for truth with the individual who is contentious with us. And we not only focus on that fight and not with that person, but then what we do is we take that person and we say, I'm actually gonna love that person and I'm gonna pray for that person because that person is no different than I was except for grace. And, and, and the, the possibility that God might change their heart as well is high. And, and so i got to see them not as the enemy because they're not the enemy, man. They're being blinded by the prince of the power of darkness, as the Scripture says. They're being veiled from the truth of God, as Paul says. So I need to love them and I need to pray for them, but still maintain this fight for truth, even if it hacks them off. I'm not going to get it personal to me. I'm going to keep loving and praying, and I'm going to stay the course, and I'm going to fight the fight. Now, I want to end by, by saying this. I, I hope that what you have seen so far in this series, and if you're new this morning, then you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back and, and you, you can watch the, the other messages on YouTube or come next week and we'll continue. Contending for the truth today is not really about abstract doctrine anymore. It's just not. That's not really the fight that is front and center. There was a time in the church, and, and not honestly that long ago, man, like maybe 10 years ago, where contending for the truth meant contending over statements like, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There are people out there who want to argue that, no, he's not the only way. He's just one good way, but there are lots of ways to heaven, and it just is up to the person to decide what's best for them. We would contend over that. We would say, no, that's not true. That's not what the Scripture says. Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We would contend about that. We would contend over things like Jesus is God. People would say, no, he's not. He's, he was like a really good teacher, and he was maybe the son of God, but he wasn't really God in the flesh. We would say, no, he was, he was absolutely God in the flesh. We would contend over those things. Those were the big topics. And it's not really longer the case. Those are not really the things that people care to argue about anymore. And so I just want to address some of the content that we've already discussed and some of the content that we're likely going to be talking about again and just say that I recognize that there are some of you out here who are uncomfortable with talking about things in the church like abortion 
or same-sex attraction or transgenderism, we talked about that last week, or even racism in the church. Those topics are treated like social issues, they're political issues, they're worldly issues, and certainly they interact with social and political and worldly aspects. But, but there's this thought in the church that those things are purely that, they're not doctrine, so we really shouldn't be talking about that. I, I'm okay with contending for the truth as long as it's over theological issues, but doctrinal issues, you know, we, we need to do that, but, but all this other stuff is just divisive, and, and so we need to just be quiet and, and just let kind of that go and, and, and mind our own business and, and move on. And what I think pastors have failed to do that have led us to this point is I think pastors have failed to demonstrate how these topics are actually extraordinarily theological, that they are actually very doctrinal in nature. Abortion, sexuality, racism, these are extremely theological concepts. You, for example, you cannot uphold the Imago Dei, that's what we call it, the, the doctrine of the image of God. Very important, very important doctrine in Scripture that says that every person, regardless of, of gender, sex, uh, race, nationality, language, whatever you're from, every single human being, good, bad, ugly, in between, all of them are created in the image of God. We are distinctly unique in creation apart from anything else that God has created because we and we alone bear the image of God. It doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean you're going to heaven, but it means that you are set apart as a human being and different than anything else on the planet and in creation because you bear God's image. You cannot uphold this doctrine and say, I believe in the Bible. I believe in Imago Dei and then cower from discussing and interacting with things like abortion and racism and critical theory. These Things are not neutral discussions. They attack the doctrine of the Imago Dei. They, they are hostile towards the truth of God's Word. They disregard the image of God in another human being. Abortion is, is snuffing out the life created in the image of God. Racism, critical theory, categorizes people in unequal categories and disregards the fact that we are all created in His image and, and otherwise equal. It, it minimizes this stuff. These are extremely theological issues. You cannot uphold, for example, the design of marriage. You can't read Ephesians chapter 5 and go, I believe in Ephesians 5. I believe when Paul gives the instructions for husbands and wives, that's the kind of marriage I want to have. That's the kind of husband or wife I want to be. And, and you can't read Ephesians 5.31 where he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, which is a quote from Genesis 2.24, by the way. And then he goes on and says this. This is the most incredible part of that passage. He says, this mystery, talking about marriage, is profound and I am saying that that it refers to Christ and the church, that the marriage between a man and a woman, the, the focus, the, the point of marriage is not to make you happy, it's not that you'll have a nice life, it's to convey something about the nature of Jesus and his relationship to the church, to the world, such that when a husband and wife live biblically, they are imaging to the world how Jesus loves his bride. 
You can't believe that and then say, well, I don't really want to get caught up in the homosexuality or transgender debate. It's not really any of my business. No, it's not that it's not any of your business. It's that it doesn't really matter to you. Because as I said before, you'll only be contentious over the things that matter to you. I'm contentious over this stuff. I am contentious because I believe Scripture. I've devoted my life to it. I believe that truth is truth regardless if anyone else agrees or not, including myself. I believe God is who he reveals himself as in the word of God. I believe that all people are made in his image. I believe that we were designed by him with specific purpose as both male and female. I believe this stuff and I'm never going to shut up about it. I'm going to contend for it. And people can take shots at me and get personal and attack me. And here's what I'm going to do when that happens. I'm going to do everything I can to remember, to contend for the truth even when it becomes inconvenient for me. And when the slaps start happening to turn my other cheek, and when the demands start happening to go the extra mile, to not get distracted, to keep my focus on the real fight, to love those who contend with me and pray for me. And here's my prayer as your pastor is that I hope you will as well. Because listen, this is what makes us different. This is what makes us Jesus' people. We don't back down from speaking the truth, but we do it radically differently than the world does it. Radically different. And, and check this out. If we all do it together, together we pull more weight and we make a far greater impact on the kingdom. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, thank you for another challenge uh, from Scripture, God. We, we expect it to be challenging when it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And uh, Lord, we're not disappointed this morning. There, there's a great challenge laid before us by your Son, and I pray that we would take it very seriously. God, I know that, that we'll, we're going to fail at this at some level. We're imperfect people, and you and you alone are, are responsible for shaping us more into the image of Jesus. And so, God, we confess we're, we're, we're not going to do this right every time, and we pray for forgiveness in advance, and, and we rejoice in grace when it covers our shortcomings. But, but I pray, Lord, that, that the more you develop us as Christians, the less we would violate these things, because we recognize when we live according to how you've called us, so many things happen that we ourselves are not capable of making happen. They come from you. So we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves humbly to you. We ask that you would change our hearts, that, that you would give us courage, you would give us boldness to speak the truth, but God, that you'd give us a double measure of gentleness and patience with the people who take great issue with the things that we believe. A softness of heart to pray for and love those who are we're quite frankly pretty ugly to us and will only continue to get more ugly with us the more we stand on what we believe is truth. We love you and we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, Reeves is in Baltimore right now. Uh, just the thought he would just leave, which that's... That's, that's, his, that's his job. You know, he's, he's getting more and more uh, speaking engagements for Fearless. We are praying that that will continue to happen because we know when he's out doing that, 
um, huge impact is, is being made. And so uh, he plans on being back next week. We'll continue back in actual Jude's letter. And uh, so hopefully this was a, a nice little bonus content for you to propel you forward and do what we're all striving to do, which is be about the help, hope, and, and healing of Jesus in a, in a, a contentious world. And uh, so we're praying for you. Look forward to seeing you next weekend. God bless you. See you next time.